Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, man, God is so good, is he not? I think those words are so, the words of that song and that prayer, Robbie, thank you for leading us in worship to, to all of you guys. Um, thank you for coming in and pouring your heart out before the Lord, entering his throne room. You guys can't see him. I'm looking at him, though. <laughs> but they serve us well, these people do. They work hard. They use the skills that God has given them, and, and they've, they pour their heart out before, each of a, before all of us each week, and that's a blessing. It's a vulnerable place for them to put themselves in, and I just want to say thank you to you guys. Thank you for doing it, especially doing it in this environment. is kind of weird, but you guys do it still wholeheartedly, so thank you. Our God is so good, is he not, my friends at home? He's so good. And it's so applicable, um, uh, appropriate, given that we sang that song coming into uh, this passage tonight. We're in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3. And as we continue in this, uh, this book of Philippians, we see that the great call of this chapter, of chapter 3, is to prize Jesus above everything else. It's to prize Jesus above everything else. And that thankfulness, that gratitude, that recognition that he is good. You are good, God. Uh, that, that's at the heart of prizing him. Because that's, that's what it takes to recognize truly how valuable he is. How good he is. Uh, let's dive into it. We're going we're gonna to walk through it. Um, and then on the back end of this, we're going to take communion. It's going to be great. Sarah's going to come up and lead us through that. Um, we have a wonderful night here ahead of us, especially because of what this passage gets into. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Verse 1. He writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for, for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul is, is bridging uh, what he had just said in, in chapter two and bringing it in to what he's about to talk about by saying further, my brothers and sisters, further, continuing my brothers and sisters. The first thing he says is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This is so good. <laughs> He says this still, he says this to a people who are suffering. He says this as a man who is suffering. He's suffering for the sake of Christ. And, and he says this after just sharing about one of their own, their friend Epaphroditus, who is, who is sick, who almost died. He says rejoice, even though he himself is unsure of the outcome of his imprisonment. He says rejoice, 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 rejoice. I think for some of us, uh, for some of you who might be listening, you hear this command, this call to rejoice, and, and it actually stings. It maybe even hurts a little bit. Because you feel like what he's trying to say is, look, slap a smile on your face. Why? Because. <laughs> Just because. That's why. Because I said so. Because we should. I think that's how we feel, and, and maybe that's how you might feel. Sometimes if you, when you walk into church or into a small group or, or log on, <laughs> That you need to project happiness even if you have no reason for it. But that's not what he's saying. <laughs> that's not what he's saying. This isn't a call to rejoice just because. But to rejoice in God. 
to rejoice in God, when we come to the scriptures and we see what it says, it's important to slow down and really look at what is it saying, not what do I feel like it's saying, what, do I, what does it seem like it's saying, but to work through what, what are the words being used and to capture all of it. The call is to rejoice in something specific. It's to, it's to rejoice in the Lord. Oh, here's the thing. What, what we think upon, um, when we think about God, no matter what circumstances we might be in, it should at least elicit like a half smile. You know, like, man, this is really hard. This is really tough. Yeah, but God's good, right? That like even in hard times, no matter what's going on, we can rejoice in God. We can rejoice in God no matter the circumstances we're in because God is good, because he is good, because God has saved us through Christ Jesus. We rejoice because even in this confinement, God is glorified. And our hope is eternally secure no matter what tomorrow holds. We rejoice because Jesus let go of heaven, as we talked about, seeing in, in, in chapter 2 of Philippians. Christ let go of heaven. He, he was spit on, tortured, so that we, you and I, could know the power of his resurrection. We, we rejoice because God can empathize with us. And he has the power to redeem us from this Moral, spiritual, physical decay, suffering, all of this stuff. The call is to rejoice in God because he did for us what we had no power to do on our own. The thought here is it's to let the thought of God's goodness triumph. That no matter what's going on, no matter what you come into, to let the thought of God's goodness triumph over everything. And that doesn't mean to deny hard things or to ignore them as if they're not there, but to keep coming back around to God's goodness. That all the things you might be facing, to keep coming back to God's goodness, to keep coming back to those things he's done for us, to keep bringing yourself back to it so that you can say, you can get that half smile and be like, oh, this is so hard. Quarantine is rough and the orders got extended and I was doing okay but now oh. bring yourself back before the Lord come back and reflect upon how good he is not because it makes those things go away but because it triumphs over them because in them we have a thread of hope that goes well beyond this life we live we rejoice in the Lord and Paul says, I can say it again and again and again. He says, it's, it's good for me to do this, to say it again. It's good for you that I do it. It's mutually beneficial to be encouraged in our rejoicing in God and to be reminded of how good he is. You can't say it enough. So he starts, rejoice in the Lord, right? I think we got that. Rejoice in the Lord. But then, oh, sorry, this, this, is, this is the part that gets weird, right? <laughs> like, like, this is the part that gets weird. You think rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, rejoice in the Lord. And then he's like, but beware of those dogs, those scoundrels. Watch out for those guys. It's like, what? How is, where does this go? But I promise. I don't need a promise. It's, it's connected. It, it is connected. The rejoicing in the Lord and what he's talking about with these guys is connected. See, see what he's talking about with these, the, the warning that he gives right after saying rejoice in God. Is, is there people 
who, who rather convincingly were teaching things that are not necessary for salvation as though they were necessary for salvation. These um, mutilators of the flesh, as Paul calls them, uh, they laid a heavy burden on the believers around the, the whole region, really. Uh, they, they tried to teach things that, that you, have to, you have to be circumcised or else you don't belong with God. And that's a burden, that, uh, a burden of legalism that all of Israel couldn't bear. And that's to be perfect, to do, to do everything just right. Or even when they couldn't, to, to interpret things so that they could justify and explain away or disguise their imperfections. But the problem with this is that God's not fooled by it. His standard is perfection. It's well beyond them. Uh, Matthew, in the book of Matthew, Jesus quotes the book of Isaiah. And he condemns the Pharisees who, who were the pinnacle of legalism in the day. He says this, these people honor me with their lips but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. See, the Pharisees uh, were known for adding their own laws to the Old Testament and considering them as authoritative. And this is who Jesus was talking about in Matthew 15. Rather than encouraging higher respect for the law, the, the things that these guys did, uh, they didn't make a believer's life holier. Their countless regulations burdened the Jewish people and often contradicted each other, which was obviously problematic. So Jesus condemns these additions to the scriptures. And through this quote from Isaiah, he showed the consequences of that attitude, the attitude that the Pharisees carried, which was legalism, which is specifically what Paul is pointing out about these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh. And that attitude, what we see is that the Pharisees were so focused on saying the right words and doing the right things that they forgot to actually love and worship God in the process, much less other people. So these people in the Philippian church that Paul is referring to, the, the mutilators of the flesh, the dogs, man, those are some insults, aren't they? That's rough. Um, they have the same legalistic mindset as the Pharisees, and their particular manifesto centered around circumcision. That maybe makes you uncomfortable, but if you haven't read the Old Testament, you'll, you'll get used to it. <laughs> See, Jewish identity as the people of God is connected to circumcision, and, and that's how, it's, how God established it from Abraham on. But in Jesus, in Jesus, the fullness of the law is manifest in a person's life through the spirit of God. So circumcision becomes secondary. Absolutely secondary. See, these dogs, as Paul calls them, were, were holdovers from that legalistic, pharisaical vein that Jesus condemned in Matthew 15. And they carried that legalism over into Christianity. They said that if the males among you don't get circumcised, then God rejects you and you have no place with Jesus. Praise the Lord that that's not true. <laughs> that is not true. Christ during his earthly ministry made clear that we are redeemed by God and not by the law. Paul argues this point in Romans 7. And, and just to quote a portion of that argument, he says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, 
not in the old way of the written code. What he's saying is these, these people who come and try to convince you that circumcision is the gateway to being God's child, they don't recognize the truth. The truth that we who put no confidence in the flesh, who serve God by his spirit and who boast only in Jesus, it is we who have been welcomed into the family of God. So Paul writes about rejoicing in the Lord and it's connected right before this whole, this mutilators of the flesh, dogs warning thing. He writes about rejoicing in the Lord because it is God who has saved us. And Paul warns about being led away from that to pridefully rejoicing in our good works or legalism. The call is to rejoice in God, not ourselves. Rejoice in God, not the good things you've done. Rejoice in God, not the degree you've earned. Rejoice in God, not the family line you come from. Rejoice in God, not the goals you have. The call is to rejoice in God. So we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. See, this doesn't mean that we give up on repentance. It certainly doesn't mean we give up on repentance or just indulge in sin. Not at all. Keep reading Romans 7. See, but a part of rejoicing in the Lord is to be transformed by him and to leave behind those things that contradict Christ. But when we do, when we do leave behind sin, when we do turn away from things that contradict Christ, when we do step out of that sin and into righteous, healthy living, we rejoice in God, not in those good deeds. Because it's God who first saved us. You know, Colossians 2 puts it this way. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Right? So notice the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, not physical circumcision. And that God saved us even before we ever tried to please him or could. He saved us before we ever did a good deed. And he forgives us all our trespasses, having canceled the debt ascribed to us in the decrees that stood against us. That's the law. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. We don't boast in anything we've done that makes us look better because God did all the work for us. We boast in him. We rejoice in him. You didn't earn your place with God. He earned it for you and he gives it to you freely. And that's worth a half smile, no matter what circumstances you're in. He continues in verse four. We put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Well, there's an unexpected twist. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul uh, is like, we don't boast in those things. It's all about Christ. And then he says, but if anyone could boast, I could. If anyone could, I could. He's like, if you're going to try and take that legalism route that these guys are trying to convince you of, if you're going to try and take that route, take it from someone who's taken it further than you will ever be able to. It's not that great. I've gone down that path and it amounted to nothing. 
so I choose Jesus. I've been where you want to be, and it's not what you think it is. It's all about Jesus. Based on the authority, the legalism that these guys were trying to convince the Philippians about, uh, it's all about their good deeds, it's about what they do, it's about what they do. Paul's like, look, any authority they have on that place, I I have more. (laughs) I have more, and it got me nowhere. So Paul lists out four things that were his possessions by birth, and then three things that were his personal choice and conviction. And all of these are reasons why he might have confidence in the flesh. And then he lists out these, uh, these, these things he lists out. They put him at the top of the heap. Like no one could, like this is, he's, he's, this list is good. Like it's really good. It's really good. So I just want to walk through them real quick. On one side, you got the things he's born with, the things that, that he didn't earn, that he just w- was born into. And they're pretty great if you're trying to earn your way to God. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, which basically means his, his parents did everything they were supposed to do. Uh, the legacy of obedience to God spans the generations that came before him, and that was a big deal. Next, we see that Paul is of the people of Israel. So he's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore an heir to God's covenant with them. That's important, particularly important because he's speaking to people who are Gentiles, like myself. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, This is a distinguished tribe, and it's distinguished because uh, it gave Israel its first king. It was the only tribe that stayed faithful to God alongside the tribe of Judah and the city of Jerusalem's within its boundaries. So if you're going to be an Israelite, being a a Benjaminite, I think that's the right word, is that's good. You, You want that stock. You want that legacy, that lineage. And finally, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Basically, in every way, he had the most ideal lineage, the most, the best family legacy. That if you want to please God through legalism, you couldn't ask for a better start to life. And not many people had that start. Then Paul lists out three things that were his by personal choice and conviction. He says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. So among an elite people, the Jews, Paul was of an elite sect, the Pharisees, who we talked about a little bit already. They were passionate, passionately devoted to the law of God. You know, even the title Pharisee means separated ones. Oh, I'm a Pharisee. I'm, a, I'm different than you. I'm different than you, man. That's like full of piousness. <laughs> he was strict. Paul was as strict as they come excessively adhering to Jewish religious law in a way that few other people did. He was disciplined. The next thing we see is that he, uh, concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. So Paul was not merely disciplined in following Jewish law. He was passionate about it. So much so that he went and he attacked anything that, that he saw as a heresy against Judaism. And he hunted down Christians before he became one. And finally, he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's bold claim. That's super bold claim. But the crazy thing is that's that's not, when you come with this legalistic mindset, that's how you think. And, And I'll explain a little more in a moment, but I think some people, I know myself, I think I'm quick to dismiss myself as legalistic. I'm quick to say, I'm not legalistic. That's, no, I'm 
nothing like that because I'm not a Pharisee, you know, like circumcision, okay, whatever. Like, but the heart of, of legalism is to put ourselves above others based on what we do. It's to climb a ladder and see every rung, uh, every rung above us as, as a, a person that we can pull on to climb higher and get above them or anyone below us, someone we can step on to, to elevate our rank and maybe God will notice us. Maybe God will see us because we've distinguished ourselves from all these other people. And what a crazy thing when we actually read the scriptures. Jesus went to a tax collector's house. He, he went to places that no prideful, upstanding person would go to. Because that's where the people were. Because he loved people. Because he didn't see someone walking in the door and, and rank them related to himself. But I think that's what so many of us do. And maybe not in every aspect, but in some. We look for those ways that we can soothe our own insecure soul. And we, we, we go to legalism, things like this. That's just not, uh, that's not, that's not how we make our way to salvation or time with God. Nor is that how we build community. Nor is that how we invite people into the family of God. Nor is that what Jesus would do. <laughs> We're called to live in love like Jesus, and, and that's not what Jesus does. In fact, he calls it out, and he says, man, you're worshiping with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So Paul says, as far as the law, I was faultless. I was faultless. It shows that Paul achieved the standard of righteousness, which was accepted among the men of this day. Eh, comparison, that's, that's risky. It's rough. Comparison is rough. That is, by all external standards, he was righteous looking. <laughs> he looked as righteous as any man could be. Therefore, I am. <laughs> like, man. And that's possible. That was possible for him to think and to fall into and for other people to fall into in this time. And because of how the Mosaic law was interpreted and taught, uh, there were those in that day who were deceived into thinking that they really were faultless. Like the rich young ruler in Luke 18. See, Paul would have been considered blameless in the eyes of other men, and so he thought he was. But that's not so in the eyes of God. And that's the problem. God doesn't look at us based on how we rank compared to other people. He looks at us based on how we rank compared to one person, and that's himself. And in that, we all fall short. And there's no way we can make it up. There's no way we can, we can measure up or get to the place uh, that God would that we could even be in his presence. So God did it for us. He came, uh, Jesus came and he, he suffered. He suffered, he gave up heaven. Read Philippians 2 again. Go back to that message Brian Howard preached out of the beginning of Philippians 2. And think upon how much Jesus did for you and I. And then rejoice in God. Rejoice in his salvation. Not in how awesome you are. <laughs> you might be pretty cool, but you know, you're only so cool. <laughs> you can only get so cool. So, in essence, Paul is saying, I've made it to where you want to be and realized that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So this is like legalism. It's an idol. It's a false God that people pursue where they think they will be satisfied and in which they will Take care of things. They'll be okay. Any afflictions they might have. Well, if I just get here, I'll feel better. And everything will be okay. And like all idols, in the end, 
For all it requires, it delivers so little. It delivers so little. So I thought to follow Paul's example here for the modern day young adult, uh, I will lay out my own list of I've made it where you're trying to get and it's not what you think it is. Now there's things I've, places I've made it in life that as a young adult, you might be like, man, I look, I'm long to get there one day. And let's be honest, there's probably a lot of things in my life that I have not made it to the places you're trying to get, but I can walk through the ones I have and, and maybe this can shed some light. Uh, perhaps some of these have become idols in your, in your life and, and maybe sharing as someone who's made it to these places can shed a little light on it for you. So first, I met a girl. I married that girl. We had a beautiful wedding. It was great. And we've had a couple kids. And I've recognized that that companionship, companionship like that, a family, that doesn't make my life complete. Christ does. Now, she and I have gotten to a place financially that we can afford our own house. We own a house and we can support two kids in Southern California. Never, seriously, never thought, never, never thought I would, never thought that would happen. But here we are. Nevertheless, here we are. And I've come to learn that that financial security, that arrival associated with those financial events, it didn't change the depth of my relationships. Uh, it didn't change the purpose in my life, and uh, it definitely didn't change my ability to know what tomorrow holds or if I'll be secure or safe in it. If I'll have all the things I have today, tomorrow, I, I don't know. It doesn't change any of that. I still have to trust Jesus. I've earned a bachelor's degree. I've earned a master's degree. And even if I walked around with my diplomas on my shirt like a jersey number, it wouldn't earn me any more respect than the integrity of my words. I've lived at home with mom and dad into my 20s. I've lived on other continents. I've lived in the mountains and in the ocean, not in the ocean, by the ocean. Uh, I've, I've lived amongst deeply connected community. I've lived uh, in relative isolation. And I've recognized that my location doesn't impact my ability to thrive as much as my perspective on God's purposes does. I stand up here right now as a pastor. I have that title, pastor. And some people would see that as I am a religious elite or something. For those of you who know me, I don't think you would see that. I have the title, pastor. I've arrived spiritually at the pinnacle Christian religiousness or whatever. I don't know. And yet, that, that title doesn't change my standing with God. It doesn't change my wrestling with temptation like anyone else. Or like I did before I had the title. I still have to fight temptation. It doesn't change the, the difficulty of carving out time to sit and be alone with Jesus or read the scriptures. It doesn't change that. In some ways, I've been, maybe, maybe, where you're trying to get to, and I've learned it's still all about Jesus. It's still all about Jesus. 
No matter what you're, you're reaching for, if it's not Jesus, you're going to end up missing out on something. It's all about Jesus. Paul is calling out the ignorance that, that when you go down the path of legalism or idolatry, the if I only had X, Y, Z, whatever it is, whatever you put in that gap, if it's not Jesus, you're not going to be satisfied like you think you will. You're, you, you won't be good enough like you think you will. You won't have the respect that you expected or whatever it is. If it's not Jesus, you're still going to be lacking. You're still going to be in want. And that's uh, that path of putting anything in there other than Jesus leads to needing more, failing more, and to pride. To pride, which is the opposite of what Jesus models for us. So Paul wraps this whole boasting thing up. And he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. See, Paul has found in Jesus an abundant life. So rich, so full, that to compare it with anything else is absurd. It's just absurd. And I think we all need to take this to heart. He continues in verse 8. And this is uh, one of my favorite passages. Verse 8. What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, that passage is so good. It's so good. I just want to read it over and over again slowly. <laughs> Let the word of God do its thing. And I encourage you to do that. Read over this again and again and again. You know, I think of um, today, I was reminded of a prayer that Mother Teresa was known for praying. And that is, Lord, I want to want you. Maybe when you read this passage, it makes you insecure, makes you feel inadequate. Because you're like, man, well, I don't want God that much. I don't know if I ever will. It's okay. But it gives something to strive for. It gives a vision for what the life we long to have, the passion, the love for God that we long to have, where, where we won't be drugged away by all these things into stuff that's really not that fulfilling. Because Jesus is the prize. So maybe pick up uh, that prayer from Mother Teresa. Lord, I want to want you. I want to want you, Lord. And read through this and be encouraged. Get, be cast a vision by Paul's own longing and love for God. Be cast a vision for yourself of where you're going, of the love that you long to have for God and for the worth that he has. See what Paul's saying, what do I have to gain by letting go of everything? It's Jesus. <laughs> you have to gain Jesus and he's so worth it. Paul has surrendered everything to the altar. He was willing to sacrifice it. His, his pride, his accomplishments, his goals, his good deeds, his entire life. He was willing to give it up. Like Abraham with Isaac on the mountain, he was willing. And in fact, he had given up so much. And it's so worth it to give it up. 
Because that which he has gained by doing so is so much more rewarding than what he's let go of. All of us need to take this to heart. That whatever you release to take a hold of Jesus is worth releasing. Whatever you release to take a hold of Jesus is worth releasing. It's a net positive. Nothing compares to Jesus. I love that for as much as Paul understands of Jesus and the scriptures and theology, it's still a bit of a mystery to him, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. It's just like so beyond. And knowing Christ is so good. It's so good that Paul calls out that it's worth death. It's worth suffering. It's worth anything just so long as it leads to being with Christ. Jesus is the prize. Paul brought everything to the altar because of what he got to walk away from the altar with. He was willing to give it up. All the privilege he was born into, all the respect he had accumulated, all the self-assuredness he had fostered, all the self-righteousness he had cultivated through hard work and self-sacrifice, he brought it to the altar. He brought it all to the altar. He brought everything to the altar. He was like, look, any control that I might have over what tomorrow will look like, I'm going to bring it to the altar. I'm willing to let go of it to lay it down. So long as it means taking hold of Jesus. See, all the violence that he incited against innocent people, all the pride he had fortified himself with, all the pain he had caused himself and others over the years, he brought all that stuff too. He brought it all. He brought it all before God, knowing he could leave it behind. He could leave it behind and walk away with Jesus. It's so worth bringing everything to the altar. Willing to leave it behind if necessary because of what you get to walk away from the altar with. Because of who you get to walk away from the altar with. Please keep this in mind now as we sing this song about coming before the altar and seeing the Lord's arms wide open, ready to receive us. Now we get to walk away with Jesus as we leave behind those things that are lesser than him.